Welcome to the Roots Podcast, brought to you from the Training and Equipping Ministry of Chanctonbury, exploring revival, church, leadership and culture. Discover more about our community at chanctonbury.org.uk. Um, I guess first, kind of a, a, a structural point, um, I, I'm going to give one chat that will be you know, somewhere in the range of 40 minutes or so. Don't hold me quite to it, uh, but close to that. Then we'll have um, a short break, and then I'll come back for um, a shorter chat, uh, a little second session, and then we'll have some time for um, breakout and discussion. So that's what you can kind of gear up for. Um, this this first one is going to be a bit of the meteor session, um, and then we'll go into something shorter at the end. Well, first of all, I'll just say that um, I am very, very, very excited to be talking about this topic. Um, you know, when, when I met with uh, James a while back and we kind of discussed various things in terms of what's on my heart and um, the things I care about, this this surfaced as one of the main things. Um, so it is, is, it is something I enjoy talking about um, a lot. So I'm, I'm thankful to get to, to um, discuss it with you today and get into it. Um, but let's just pray um, and, and just dive in that way. Jesus, I simply ask this, this morning that you would um, open our minds to understand the scriptures. You open our hearts and minds um, <clears throat> and begin to, to, to speak to us and show us truth. Uh, we want to hear you. We want to learn from you. And we want it to uh, transform us. We want to leave here um, changed and developed and transformed. Thank you for your faithfulness um, that, that you provide in these ways. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about um, what I'm going to call a Jesus-centered hermeneutic and how this um, unlocks the whole of Scripture for us. Now, first, um, I should probably ask, <clears throat> what do I mean by hermeneutic? Some of us may be really familiar with this term. Some of us have probably hear it and kind of know, but don't hugely know, and then others may have never heard it before, um, and I've been in all of those camps. Um, hermeneutic is simply a, a method or a way of interpretation. It, it is a way of interpreting what we read. A hermeneutic is a, is a way that we read something and a way that we interpret it. So <clears throat> in this case, a Jesus-centered method or way of reading the scriptures. That sounds like a good idea, right? Yeah. I think so. Um, and so to do that, as we're going to, going to explore um, a Jesus-centered hermeneutic or a way of reading the scriptures, um, I'm going to go down a bit of the story route. So um, hang with me for uh, in this session, there's, there, there's going to be a lot of uh, biblical story, and then it will turn into a solid structured point or two for those of you who really like the, the solid points that you can write down. I know who you are. I know what that's like, um, but let's let's start with um, turning to Luke 24. We're just going to dive straight into to the story in Luke 24. Um, so, as Jim said, there's you know it, it could be a good idea to have your scripture with, with you, um, whether that's physically in paper or or on your screen. But I'm also going to read it out. So, if for you you can you can tune in the best um, by listening to my voice, um, then you can just do that, whatever makes it easiest for you to follow along. So at this point, um, in, in the story in Luke 24, Jesus' body, um, it, it had been laid in a tomb, um, and on the first day possible after the Sabbath, which was, it is now Easter morning, it, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, uh, and Mary, the mother of James, and some other women actually, they came to the tomb bringing spices. Now, this was most likely for, for anointing and embalming and scattering these spices. It'd kind of be like us laying flowers on a grave, um, something like that. And so they've come thinking, of course, that he is still 
uh, he is still dead. He has still been crucified and he has not risen, but we know this is Easter morning and he has in fact risen that morning. Um, so they end up coming up to it and encountering the stone rolled away. There is no body of Jesus. And instead they meet angels um, who remind them of Jesus's words, telling them that these events would happen and that he is now risen. So the women, they then uh, remembered Jesus's words and in excitement, they go back to tell the men. They go and tell the men disciples who were um, back, you know, scared, uh, moping, sad, all different emotions are happening back in this house um, of men disciples. And as they um, relay the message, you can imagine that this would make the room go absolutely nuts. I mean, the group of the disciples, um, instead, it says that they thought the women's uh, words were an idle tale or in other translations, nonsense, and they refused to believe the testimony. Now, don't you find it interesting that Jesus told his followers so many times that he would die and then raise on the third day, and then on the third day, there's no you know, Black Friday line of lawn chairs waiting outside of his tomb with all the followers, you know, waiting to see that, 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 that's not there. And even after hearing the report from the women disciples that he's not there, he's risen. They still think it's nonsense. They just don't, they don't believe it, you know, and, and I've got, I've got a list. I, I, I won't read here, but of half a dozen times where Jesus tells them explicitly what's going to happen. He will die and he will resurrect. And he even says it'll happen on the third day. So why not believe that he is risen? Why is that? And this, I think at this point in the story is a big question we should be asking. Um, and it's not just because coming back from the dead was unbelievable because they saw it with their own eyes with Lazarus and Jairus' daughter. Um, and so we will get into this a bit later of, gosh, why couldn't they connect that, that Jesus, that it would happen this way, even though he told them it would. Um, so none of the disciples um, and those gathered believed the women's news. Um, none of them but Peter uh, in this gospel account. And so he goes back and checks and that, that's exciting for him. So now um, we're going to jump to verse 13. And uh, this picks us up at a great story that we call the road to Emmaus. So if you want to make sure you can kind of track up to verse 13. Now it says, two of these disciples, and so now, uh, now that we've brought the context in, two of these disciples, this would be two people who were in that room who uh, were not believing the story of the women, um, who they may, though, have started to wonder if maybe the women's reports could have been true. It's confusing, but the general backdrop is... Um, unbelief that this could have happened. And um, they were uh, going <clears throat> that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. So it's like a seven mile walk. Um, their, their heads were, were, were hung low. They are understandably really sad. So if you, if you wanna think about this, um, over the last three years, location for these disciples was pretty much always determined by Jesus, right? So wherever he went, they're going to follow him. And now he's gone. So where do they go? Um, and that I think is, is at least maybe one of the reasons why this whole group is waiting in that room is they've been following Jesus for, for years. So no one is telling them where to go anymore. Um, he, he's gone. And so they were now kind of just wandering back to Jerusalem. Um, they're not following him anymore. They're, they're going and doing their own thing for the first time in a while, probably. <clears throat> and they were talking about all these things that had taken place, you know, the death um, uh, of the one they were following, who they had all their hopes resting on. And then the supposed sighting from the women, you know, is that true? Could it be? Um, they're walking and talking and suddenly there's a guy that's, near them um, you know had he caught up to them or had they started walking quickly and they caught up to him they don't really know but he was suddenly walking with them 
Um, now, what they don't know is that this guy is, and if we were in the church, I would have turned to you and pointed and you would have yelled, Jesus, um, if you know the story. So what they don't know is that this mysterious person that is now walking with them on the road to Emmaus is Jesus. Uh, so Jesus asks them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And at this point, um, remember what time frame we're in. So Jesus, which is, you know, the radical claiming to be king in Caesar's empire, he's just been executed publicly. So it is not a popular time um, or probably a safe time to be a disciple of Jesus right now. Uh, and again, this is probably another reason that the disciples were crammed in the house um, behind locked door <clears throat> at the moment, because it's, it's just not a great time. You know, they're taking their bumper stickers off their cars that said, you know, Jesus 33. Um, so uh, a mysterious guy kind of comes out of nowhere and um, is playing like he doesn't know what has just happened in Jerusalem. So might this guy be a spy, someone trying to catch Jesus disciples um, and imprison them? Who knows? But um, courageously, one of them answers. It says their name was uh, Cleopas. Verse 18, it says, um, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? So Jesus asks, um, asks them, what things? So he wants to hear their answer of how they view these things. So they replied, well, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and um, a word before God and all the people. And now our chief priests and leaders have handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Now, this was, as I said, it was devastating for uh, his disciples. You know, they had hoped that their guy, Jesus, would finally come in and crush Rome um, under his heel. But quite the contrary, um, they had to watch as Rome crushed him. And, and that was a, uh, as you can imagine, a devastating blow. So uh, the same disciple con continues in verse 21. Um, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Verse 22, uh, moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of them uh, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So at this point, you can see that there's starting to be um, some kind of some budding, uh, some growth in their curiosity and their and their wondering <clears throat> that maybe this is true. Um, so they've kind of, the needle has moved on their faith meter a bit. <clears throat> now, then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are <clears throat> and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Now, I want you to notice um, something really important here about his rebuke. Um, he calls them foolish and slow to believe, even though these are the disciples of Jesus. I mean, look at what they got right. He was, he was a prophet, check. He was mighty in deed and word in sight of God and all the people, check. He was delivered over to crucifixion, check. But if you listen carefully, um, you'll notice Jesus tells them specifically what key thing they aren't believing. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory that way? Now, it's, it's fascinating that he doesn't rebuke them for not believing all that he had spoken. He didn't say, guys, I told you five times that this would happen. Instead, he, he rebukes them for not believing all that the Old Testament had spoken of him. He says, you should have known from reading the scriptures that this is what would happen. Not just like, wow, it was, it was cleverly buried and I understand that you didn't capture it. He rebukes them like you should have known. Um, the prophets didn't just say that he would be a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and that he would redeem Israel. 
the prophets and, and the law, they predicted that he would redeem Israel through his suffering, his death, and then ultimately his resurrection. And so this was where the belief road ended for the disciples. And they, and they had followed him and believed him all the way until he chose to redeem through his death and resurrection. And that's where suddenly it, there was a roadblock mentally. Um, Israel and even his disciples had it so ingrained in them that this king would conquer how traditional kings would conquer. Eventually, he would overthrow the occupying empire, Rome. All the prophets and Jesus himself on many, many, many occasions predicted his own death and resurrection three days later, but they just knew that he was going to set up throne and he was going to take over the way they wanted him to. Um, but apparently, if they had been reading the Old Testament correctly, as Jesus rebuked, um, they would have known this. So again, in verse 27, it says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And I don't know about you, but goodness gracious, what I wouldn't do to be there for this Bible teaching, right? Jesus gives them a lesson on Old Testament hermeneutics showing them how to read the whole story again in light of him, how it speaks of him. Wow. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. <clears throat> um, so continuing on, uh, verse 28, they approach their, their destination and uh, Jesus acts as if he's going to go on further, but they urged him, you know, please stay, stay, stay. And so Jesus consented. Um, and they sat down to eat a meal. So uh, verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized it. And then right then, he vanished from their sight. So you can just imagine sitting down uh, to a meal with someone you've met. So this is you know a stranger, you've kind of becoming a friend. Um, he's kind of just saying, hey, let's pray for the food. And, and he breaks it and hands it to you. And the moment your hand touches the bread, you have a flash. You see Jesus who had just died three days ago, sitting in front of you. It's him, the one you just gave your whole life for. And then poof, he vanishes. I mean, talk about a crazy experience, right? There's just suddenly no one sitting across from them. And you can imagine them turning to each other like, did you see him? I'm not crazy, right? Like we weren't just hallucinating for you know, half a day, there was someone sitting there, right? Um, so their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished. And so they said to each other, whoa, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road and while he was opening the scriptures to us, right? So they, as he was giving them a hermeneutics lesson, their hearts were burning inside them, right? So Learning the scriptures and getting, getting teaching in scriptures shouldn't be boring. It should make our hearts burn if it's properly centered around Christ. Um, so it says that they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, which I think is a funny point that, that's easy to miss. They had just been coaxing Jesus in saying, hey, it's late. We need to stop. And as soon as they see Jesus, they get back up and turn straight back and walk back to Jerusalem, which is a seven-mile walk. Uh, in the dark. I think that's great. I mean, they, they had some motivation now. Um, so arriving in Jerusalem, they came straight to the 11 and, and the others as well. And this group was discussing sightings of Jesus, Simon's in particular, and saying, the Lord has really risen. And so these two began to, to relate their experience on the road uh, with, with, with Jesus and how he had been recognized with the breaking of bread. And so um, what was happening? They were all sharing testimonies of seeing Jesus, right? It was an atmosphere of testimony of saying, we've seen him, we've seen him, he is appearing. And then what happens in that atmosphere? Verse 36, while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And of course, absolutely. The person that had just died is standing there. They were startled and terrified um, and thoughts and they thought that they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, why are you frightened? And, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? So, you know, them thinking it's a ghost means 
they still don't think he's resurrected. So, you know, they are seeing him in the room and they just think, I guess it's his spirit um, or something like that. It's the spirit of a dead man, even after all that he told them and after all these visitations. And so he says, hey, look at my hands and my feet. Um, and then he asks them for some fish. So, hey, toss me some fish, you know, and, and, he, and he takes a bite just to show them it doesn't go through his mouth and just hit the floor, you know, because that's what happened with a ghost. You put the food in the mouth and it would just drop on the table, but it stays in his body and he's showing them I actually resurrected. I came out of the tomb, just like you saw with Lazarus, Jairus' daughter. I'm actually back and this isn't just a ghost. Um, then verse 44, and then we're, we're almost done with, with the story. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's the same phrase, it uses back um, all on the road to Emmaus. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Wow. <clears throat> so now that we've kind of read through that story, um, I, I want to talk about it a bit and, and, and bring a few things to the surface. Are you guys doing okay? Are you staying with me so far? We, we got about uh, 15 minutes left, I think. So I want us to think back to um, the first recorded meal of the Bible. Can you guys remember what is at the very beginning of scripture? What is the first meal that we are told about? Um, it is Adam and Eve uh, breaking into a piece of fruit, right? And it says what happened after they took a bite of that fruit. It says their eyes were opened uh, and they suddenly, they knew their nakedness um, and thus began the, the whole decay of the world. Now, so in Genesis, uh, the first meal of the first creation um, their eyes are opened and they see their nakedness, their shortcomings, their insecurities. It's just a, it's a very bad situation that their eyes are open here. Now in Luke, this is the first meal of the second creation, the new creation, right? With, with the resurrection with Jesus coming, this is the first act of the new creation. And this is the first meal recorded and their eyes are opened again. This is a new opening of eyes. And what do they see? What's the first thing they see? It's not their insecurities. It's not their nakedness. I should say rather, who do they see? They see Jesus. This is the first thing they see in Luke's account as, as, this, as, as, they're, as they are breaking bread and they're eating the, this first meal. Um, he has taken on their nakedness, their insecurities, their sin. Their eyes are opened and now they see him. But, and, and here's important. This is really important. Who do they see him as? Right. So in, in war movies, when when warriors return from battle, <clears throat> they're typically um, covered in, in the blood of their enemies. Um, and this symbolizes their victory. Right. The more blood they have on them, it means the more they really handed it out uh, to their opponents. And this is usually a thing of pride. Um, Jesus returns from battle um, and his sign of victory is his own blood and his own wounds. We talk about sub subversive um, to uh, a, a war culture. He is, he is the risen glorified Christ because he is a crucified Christ. Um, he kept his wounds for a reason. He is forever the crucified Christ. So he is forever demonstrating his suffering and his crucifixion. You don't have the resurrected Christ without the suffering and the, and the crucified Christ. So his victory came about through those things. And these are the things that he highlighted in their lack of understanding the scriptures. He says, you, you, you didn't understand that I must suffer and be glorified this way. This road to being king, you didn't understand this road. You couldn't accept this road. <clears throat> um, Revelation says that his church will overcome him by the blood of the lamb. Uh, not, not the sword in his hand, but the blood of the lamb, his own blood and, and the word of their testimony. And so when we read the Old Testament, um, 
not as a story uh, that tells of a God who will come and, and one day finally crush his enemies, but as a story that reveals a God who dies for his enemies, then we will be able to see him. The fact that, that no one expected the tomb to be empty and no one was waiting there demonstrates, in my opinion, their belief in how God would win. There was a way that Jesus was going to set up throne and to set up shop. It didn't happen that way, and hence, no one's waiting at the tomb. And it shows us what they th- how they thought God would win, and it shows us what they thought God was like. Those who, who are fixed um, believing that Jesus is the one who conquers by, by destroying earthly enemies, you know, fighting with the sword that Peter drew, they, they don't see Jesus. And if you're expecting resurrected Jesus to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, with an iron fist of vengeance, you don't see Jesus. You're not waiting at the tomb. But only if, if you're expecting the bread-breaking, enemy-loving, forgiving, victorious through suffering Jesus, will you actually recognize him? Um, our eyes are, are opened when we, when we properly understand Jesus as the suffering, crucified, forgiving victor. <clears throat> and so connecting this back to hermeneutics, right? Um, I think it's significant that upon G- Jesus' return, both on the road to Emmaus and then in the room with the rest of his disciples, Jesus performs a hermeneutics lesson on what, now, what we now call the Old Testament. His first act coming back from the dead. He doesn't multiply food. He doesn't heal the sick. His miracle of choice as the freshly resurrected Christ is turning your Bibles to the Old Testament. Let me open your minds to understand the scriptures. I mean, let's just wrap our minds around this for a second. Like in Luke's gospel, just to repeat myself, the very first two visitations of the resurrected Christ in the new creation, Jesus gives a hermeneutics lesson on reading the Old Testament. I mean, you really couldn't place much more value on that if you tried. Uh, talk about ad space. I mean, th- those two spots, he is, he is saying how incredibly important it is to reread the scriptures, what we now know as the Old Testament in light of Christ. Um, Jesus doesn't come back and say, no worries trying to continue to read those scriptures that you have right now. Just hold on a bit and writings will begin to circulate soon. There will be a newer Testament coming. It's fine. I know that story was confusing. No, no, no. Instead, he goes through great pains to teach them how to properly read the Old Testament. He supernaturally opens their minds to understand the scriptures. Um, and, And if you remember, what does he correct both times about understanding the, their, their understanding of him. It was that he would need to suffer and die. And this would be his road to resurrection and being victor. So their mental block of how God would and should overcome evil kept them from understanding the scriptures. And this subsequently then kept them from anticipating his resurrection. And he had to rebuke them for it. So in viewing Christ this way, um, as the one who won through self-sacrificial love, we are able to see him. And in seeing him this way, we are transformed, right? We're transformed. We thought we understood the story. We thought we had a handle that we knew exactly what God was like. In Israel, um, God's own people, the ones who knew God the best, arguably, expected him to come on a white horse with a sword in hand and finally crush Rome. And then he comes in riding on a donkey, juxtaposing warrior kings on white horses. And rather than wielding a sword, he, he reverses the sword wielding of his disciple, um, and, and he heals the ear of the enemy who captures him. So instead of, instead of using a sword to harm the people who are fighting against him, he, re- he heals his enemies as they capture him. I mean, just so subversive and shocking. Um, and so he doesn't crush them. He allows them 
to crush him. And he forgives them while doing it. Father, forgive them. Not because they're evil, but because they don't know what they're doing. Um, and, and until we understand this and, what, and that this is what God is like, um, according to, to Jesus, as far as I can tell, we won't be able to read and understand the scriptures. Um, we thought we knew what, what, what God was like, and then Jesus came. So um, John 1 tells us something pretty shocking, pretty, pretty amazing. It says, in the beginning was the word, and this is uh, not the Bible, this is Jesus, and, and Jesus is God. And he took on flesh and he dwelled among us. And we just, we had trouble recognizing him. And then in, in, in 118, John says something um, pretty shocking. Essentially, he says, Jesus is such the definitive and clearest revelation of God that he can say, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. We just need to let that one hit for a second. Um, the revelation of God in Christ. So the revelation of God that we get through the spirit revealing Christ to us is so important that after the entire Old Testament and all of humanity's interactions with God, John can say that Jesus shows us God in such a way that prior to this, no one has ever seen God. Um, so I kind of want to wrap up our, our, our first session with establishing the importance of rereading the scriptures through the lens of uh, the suffering, crucified, and resurrected Christ who reveals Abba. Um, this is how we're meant to understand Abba Father. This is how we're meant to understand Yahweh, God, and, and, and therefore how we're now meant to make sense of the Old Testament. Without understanding Christ as the crucified, suffering, and resurrected Christ, and this being at the center um, of our hermeneutic, our, our method of interpreting the scriptures, without this at the, at the center of it all, we're actually at risk um, of missing the whole plot. And we'll um, get into this a bit more um, in the next session. So with that, I'm going to um, bring this first session to a close. Brilliant. All right. Thank you so much, um, Jim. Guys, and thanks for coming back for a second Zoom session. You're going to have um, a good time together. So um, session one was, you know, we went with a bit of the, the narrative approach and looked through a story and we were able to, to kind of be inspired by um, what Jesus told us generally about um, reading scriptures in light of him, um, and not just in light of the victor Jesus, but the <clears throat> suffering and crucified and resurrected victor. And this was, you know, the, one of the key roadblocks for those who knew him best being able to understand the scriptures. <clears throat> so we talked about that. Um, but for session two, um, what I want to look at is, okay, but how do we do that? Like, that's great. I'm ready. Let's go. But what do I do? How do I do this? And um, as a bit of just preparing you for a letdown, <clears throat> I'm not going to lay out 10 systematic points of here's how you do it. I think some of this in scripture is intentionally open-ended to send us on a trajectory and let us figure this out in the messy church that we are, the bride just going for it and, and having correction coming in and, um, you know, reading incorrectly and then correctly and just working it out as a community. Um, but then there are some things that we can employ as good, helpful principles. So I'm going to raise a couple of things and, and then look at an example or two to help us. And then we'll um, finish with some discussion, which I'm really looking forward to. So how do we do it? Um, there's two main things I'm going to look at. The first, my, my first point would be read the scriptures with the spirit. Read the scriptures with the spirit. Um, the spirit is the spirit of Christ after all. And um, the spirit is a great tutor um, on understanding the scriptures in light of himself. Uh, you know, John 16, 13 says that the spirit of truth comes 
um, and he will lead you into all the truth. So this just practically means um, that we've got to be more intentional with this. It's one thing to kind of know generally that, uh, yes, that I have the spirit within me and the spirit will help me un understand as I read. But um, personally, I would recommend, um, and this is something I, I certainly don't always do, but I try my best to remember, um, is to actively partner with the spirit as reading and actively invite the spirit's um, input and the spirit's hermeneutic as we're reading. So it just means if, if you can remember, I'm opening and saying, all right, spirit, spirit of Christ, would you read with me? Would you help inform these scriptures as I read? I don't just want to read it uh, with my own intellect. I don't just want to read it with these other commentaries. Uh, I want to read it with you. And so would you please, please, please um, help open my mind to understand these scriptures in light of you. I think that that's, that's a really crucial thing. Um, the second point that I would say is, um, thankfully, we aren't just left entirely on our own after the road to Emmaus. Um, thankfully, we've got some biblical New Testament examples of how this hermeneutic is used, how it plays out we can see the real fruit of this uh, in New Testament writings. And so uh, in this second session, I want to take a brief look at Paul. And I mean, really brief. Obviously there could be, you know, there are books and 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 books on how Paul uses and interacts with the Old Testament. But we're just gonna take a quick glance at one or two texts where, where Paul um, rereads the Old Testament and we'll just look at them and go, hmm, how can this help us? And what can we do with this? How can we model this? So I'll, I'll first just um, turn to 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to, to 16. Um, he says, since then, we have such a hope. We act with great boldness, not like Moses, uh, who put a veil over his face, um, to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, so when they hear the reading of what we would call the Old Testament, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is that veil set aside. So indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ, that veil is removed. Um, so this is a, a beautiful little text from Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 16, where he is speaking of that, di of that dynamic. Now, he, I think he's speaking more broadly than just hermeneutics here, but I think it does include that. And it's this important kind of instruction from him. So he, he tells us about this mysterious veil that keeps people from understanding um, the old covenant without Christ. And he should know, right? Paul, a Pharisee, he knew the scriptures better than all of his companions. He graduated top of his class uh, in Pharisaism. And Jesus had to come along and reveal Paul's own blindness through blindness, literally, right? He was, you know, I think there's a bit of symbolism there in Paul's whole, um, his, his, his way of knowing, what we would call epistemology, his whole way of knowing and framing and understanding the world and understanding the scriptures, Torah, this had to be rewired. His blindness had to be, you know, uh, uncovered for him to be able to see these things in light of Christ. Um, <clears throat> so let's take a quick look um, at a text from Paul. Um, let's, let's look at Galatians 3. Now, are you guys happy for just a few minutes to get a bit more into the weeds with me? Um, this, this is going to be just, yeah, thanks for the thumbs up, Jim. We can do this. Um, it's just going to be, I'm going to take you a bit more into just a specific verse or two in Galatians 3, and then we'll um, surface 
out of the weeds shortly after. But I think this is a helpful little text to look at as an example. Um, so a bit of context. <clears throat> so far in the letter, um, Paul has been trying to return this Galatian community, this church, to the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are these um, Jewish Christians who are coming in <clears throat> with what Paul refers to as a perverted gospel, which means there is some shreds of gospel truth to it, but it is perverted, it is distorted, and it's <clears throat> annoyingly close enough that it's it's wooing this church away from just Jesus, and, it's, and, and he's trying to bring them into, hey, you need Jesus plus circumcision and Jesus plus works of the law. And Paul is saying, <clears throat> hey, no, 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 no. As Gentiles, you don't need these things. For the Jews, that's fine. For you, you do not need these things. You can stay Gentiles, and that's just fine for you. Um, you don't need circumcision and works of the law. So he's returning them to the purity of the gospel, to saying it is the gospel of G Jesus Christ, and that's all you need to have entrance into Abraham's family and to have the Abrahamic blessing, Jesus Christ, him crucified and, and resurrected. That is all you need. So that's what he's doing here. <clears throat> Then um, in verses one to five of chapter three, he, he reminds them that Jesus Christ was publicly dis displayed as crucified before their very eyes. So again, if you remember from last session, I was, I was really emphasizing <clears throat> that, that for understanding the scriptures and understanding Christ in this way, it's got to be, it can't just be the victorious Christ, it is the crucified and the suffering and victorious Christ. This is a key thing. So Paul is really emphasizing this and saying, <clears throat> was he not um, presented as crucified before your very eyes? He's reminding them, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus. And in these five verses, he, he's talking about that. And he's reminding them of the miracles of the spirit that are happening in their, in their community, in their midst. And here's what, here's what Paul is doing in these first five, five verses of chapter three, he's setting up um, what I believe to be a hermeneutic for his Galatian church to understand how to unpack the scriptures. Because then in verse six, he transitions into um, exegeting or, or unpacking the Old Testament. And he, and he references half a dozen Old Testament verses in, in chapter three and four. And he's just set up this, this way of reading, this way of interpreting the, the scriptures. Um, and so reading this, reading chapter three, I think it, it, it does have some complicated arguments in it, but it is also an excellent set of, of training wheels, I think, as we kind of cycle around and, and practice on our hermeneutical bike, so to speak, looking at Galatians three. Um, so I'm going to point out one specific uh, verse in chapter three for us to look at briefly. So verse 16, so this is Galatians three sixteen. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say into offsprings, plural, meaning many, but it says into your offspring, singular. That is to one person who is Christ. So again, if you remember the, the context, these, these teachers are trying to tell everyone, hey, you need to be circumcised, and then you can join this lineage of Abraham and be a part of this family this way. So Paul's coming in and say, all right, well, let's talk about Abraham. Actually, when it refers to Abraham's offspring, it's not this long family that comes from him. Instead, it's singular, this word, this Greek word, sperma. It's singular, and it's referring to one, and that person is Christ. Um. And so here's where things get interesting. Are you still following with me? I'm trying to, you know, go, go slow and, and, and bring us in here nicely. So he, he takes a look at Genesis 22, 17 to 18. So that is um, what Paul's most likely kind of quoting here. Genesis 22, 17 to 18. Um, and again, this is a bit too much for now, but he's, he's quoting the, he, he, Paul uses the Greek version of, of the old Testament, um, called the Septuagint and, and not the Hebrew. We, when you look at Paul's quotations, he's, he's going off of that. So he's actually referring to this Greek, this Greek word sperma, which is offspring. And he's saying, Hey, it's not a plural word, uh, which would mean the whole family. Um, and the chosen descendants, he's saying, this is a singular word. 
And we can now say that that singular word must be Christ. And here's what's funny. The funny thing about this is that this Greek word sperma is used all the time collectively. The word simply functions this way, even in the biblical text, it can be in singular, but it refers, it can refer to many people all the time. In fact, comically, uh, later in Galatians, Paul uses it in a collective way. Um, he uses the same word sperma to, to refer to us being the family um, of the descendants of Abraham in Christ. So Paul knows that this Greek word can be collective or it can just be one, one person, but it does often refer to many. But here, what he's doing, he is able to do a radical rereading of the story to make an important point in a certain time, in a certain place for a church he's speaking to, to try and convince them that they don't need to join Abraham's family via circumcision. He then looks at it and says, all right, I'm going to allow, I'm going to allow the revelation of Christ to reinform my, my understanding of the Abrahamic story and the blessing. Um, and so for him, the narratives of scripture and Abraham and the blessing, this whole thing is now re-understood and it orbits around the revelation of Christ. And so he's able to, from this place, from this viewpoint, he's able to look out and say, well, hey, this word sperma, which we would naturally assume is, is Isaac and then all the descendants, he says, actually, it's singular, and he's talking about Jesus. And so with this Christ-centered hermeneutic, this way of reading, he is he has permission to make this move, this exegetical move. He's able to do this in, in his argument. Um, and there's kind of a joke uh, in academia that Paul, if he were today to take an, an exegesis course or a hermeneutics course, he would probably fail uh, because some of his stuff we'd say, well, actually that word could be collective as well. You can't just say that, but that's, that's missing the point entirely. He has seen Christ. He has had a revelation of Christ. And his understanding of the Torah, remember, he was top of his class. His understanding of the Torah got flipped on its head. And now he can read things like this and say, well, guess what? That is Christ. And he does these sorts of things in a, in a, in a number of other places. It's in 1 Corinthians as well. He says, well, that rock that was following Israel around, that's Christ too. Um, and so th this is this funny, exciting, adventurous rereading that we get from Paul. It's, it's something I think we can, we can really learn from. Now, um, I'll tell you this. I have been guilty. I, I can honestly say this of reading the scriptures, uh, many, many years without letting Christ really inform my reading. Um, I made sermons, um, from old Testament stories, doing my best to just piece together the best moral values and principles I could from reading these familiar stories. Uh, Abraham was, was faithful and loyal and Esther was brave and Joseph could dream big. And these are great principles that we can extract. Um, but here's the scary, honest thing is that these were sermons or points that I could have made without having met Jesus. And that's just the honest truth. I think it, I could have handed the same story to someone on the street that never met Jesus and said, all right, using our, your current understanding of, of Western moral values, what points can you extract from this figure in this story? And they might've come up with pretty similar points, <laughs> having not met Jesus and not, not knowing that story. And so I had to come to that realization that like, wow, Jared, it's not good enough for me to, to read these stories and just what I would call moralize the text. Just look at it and go, what moral principle can I get from this story? Um, I think we now know in light of Christ that that's just not good enough. That's, that's not what it means to have a, revel a revelation of Christ um, reinform our reading. We, we've got to see uh, him in the text and we've got to see how a crucified, uh, suffering and crucified and resurrected Christ reinforms our understanding of God in that story. So for me, the, the question I had to ask myself is if Jesus isn't 
my interpretive ethic for, for reading the scriptures. If, if, if he's not there as the, as the center, my lenses, as I'm reading, then how am I reading it? What's, what's my grounding for truth? Um, how do I know what truths and principles to extract from scripture, especially narratives? I mean, goodness gracious, Old Testament stories, when, when people's lives were absolutely messy, ups and downs and terrible choices and good choices. But if we just, we can't just say, um, well, scripture is the source of all, of all of our truth. And that isn't as clean as we think it is. It, it ignores the fact that within the global church, we have endless competing theologies and interpretations of, of the text. We must begin with the idea that Christ is the revealed word of God. He reveals God. And this is how we must enter back into scripture. So for me, um, I'm, I'm dead set on my kids learning about Jesus in the gospels before I teach them all about Noah, just because it has animals um, or David and Goliath, because it has a giant. Um, those, those are classically the stories they're going to want to gravitate to. For me, they've, they've got to learn about Christ first. And when they're ready, when I feel like Christ has properly formed their understanding of Abba, of Yahweh, then, you know, we can expose them to these stories where, as John says, it's as if we hadn't even seen God yet. There is, this is a whole other teaching, I think, a whole other discussion point, but there is, I think, a right way around uh, in, in reading the scriptures. And it, I don't think it starts with um, Adam and Eve. I think it starts with uh, Jesus, the incarnation. And then from there, we, we understand the rest of scripture. Um, so in a, in a bit of summary, um, we shouldn't be reading the old Testament, Israel scriptures, um, or even the new Testament without Jesus. He is our access into that book through salvation um, we have been grafted in, we've been picked up and, and dropped smack dab into that lineage, that family line. Um, Galatians says that because Jesus is the true heir and seed of Abraham, that we are baptized in Christ and clothed in him. And so now we are the seed of Abraham. So we are partaking in this promise, but we can't jump up and go back and read the Old Testament as ancient Israel would have. Um, our entrance and access into this book is through Christ only. So without Christ, the Old Testament is just Israel's holy book, right? This is, this is not, as a Gentile, this is not your book to read. This is Israel's book. But in Christ, when Christ is our escort, he's, he's our chauffeur. <laughs> we, we, are, we go hand in hand with Christ. We hold his hand as we venture into the scripture. He, he, is, our only, um, he is our only justified entrance into reading that book is that we have been brought in through Christ. And so we've got to read it with him. Thank you for joining us on the Roots podcast. To connect with our community and to find other resources, visit chanctonbury.org.uk.